you would uh, open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, it is a blessing to be here this morning. Crystal and I consider Reformation Bible Church to be family, and uh, it really is a, a blessing to be here with you to worship. Uh, last time I preached was about a year ago, uh, almost exactly a year ago, and I preached uh, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3. And I hope you have a good memory, because this morning we're going to pick up in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. Uh, So let's go ahead and read. Uh, By the way, that's kind of more of a joke than anything. You're not going to really need to remember that. But um, we'll read Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, and then we'll pray, and then we'll, we'll dig in. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Well, let's pray. Our great God, we come to you, as always, in the name of your Son, Lord, realizing that apart from him, Lord, we would still be in our sins. If you did not send your Son, the Lord Jesus, as our Savior, to die in our place, we would still be condemned. And so we only come in his name, in the name of Jesus, because he is our only hope. And we thank you so much, Lord, that we can come at all. And most of all, that we can come as children to a father, that you have adopted us, you've brought us into your family. Lord, we thank you for this church. We thank you for your word. And now, as we consider your word, and we consider all that you have to say, I I ask for the help of your Holy Spirit to open eyes to the glory of the truth of what you have done for us in the person of your Son. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, so this morning we'll be looking at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. Before digging into the particulars of the passage, I'll just say by way of introduction that Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 is found 
It's situated in uh, one long sentence in the original language. If you look at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, what we just read, that's one sentence in the original language. And so it's one thought, right? And what Paul is saying in this section or in this long thought is he's saying in verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In other words, what he's saying is that he's saying, praise be to God, or, or blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's worshiping God because of the riches of God's grace that he has given us in the person of his Son. God the Father has given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in the person of his Son. Now, in verses 4 through 14, that's verse 3, in verses 4 through 14, Paul begins to enumerate the blessings that the Father has given us in the person of his Son. That's the whole context of this one long sentence. He says, Praise be to God for giving us every spiritual blessing in Christ. Now, what are these blessings? Well, verse 4, he's chosen us in Christ unto holiness. In verse 5, he has adopted us. He's predestined us unto adoption. In verse 7, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And he's listing out all the blessings that the Father has given us in the person of his Son. So this morning, we're going to be considering the blessing of election unto holiness. This is the first blessing that Paul mentions in this list of blessings that God the Father has given to us in the person of his Son. And this morning's sermon can be broken up into five five points, I guess you could say. I have five points. The first point is this, and we'll just kind of walk through them. The first point is the blessing of election. Paul tells us in verse 4, if you look at it, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Election. Where do we get the word election? Well, we get it from this word chose. That word chose can be translated as elect or select. Um, It means that God chose. He chose a certain people in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless. This is what we refer to as the doctrine of election. Now, what's the first thing that comes to your mind when you think of the doctrine of election? Most people think maybe contention, right? Debate. (laughs) Because Christians don't agree and historically have not agreed on certain aspects. Every Christian, by the way, believes in the doctrine of election. Every Christian has a doctrine of election. If you don't have a doctrine of election, then you're just not a biblical Christian. But Christians disagree on one primary thing, and that is on what basis does God choose whom he chooses. That's where the, the, the debate takes place. Um, but notice that Paul begins verse 3 with a song on his heart with a song on his lips. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, look at all that he's given us. And what's the first blessing that Paul points to, to 
illicit praise in the hearts of the Christians in the church in the city of Ephesus. He points to the doctrine of election. Election is not, first and foremost, a doctrine to debate. It's a doctrine to sing. The, the doctrine of election is a sweet doctrine. And what, whatever we think of the doctrine of, of election, we must be careful to guard it and to, to, to work with it thoroughly enough so that we understand it thoroughly enough that it might not just be this thing that we argue about. It ought to be something that draws us up into worshiping God for the riches of his grace. It is a doctrine that we sing about, first and foremost. It is not a doctrine that we debate, first and foremost, although we do have to debate it when we don't agree, right? Uh, so it's, it's a doctrine worth debating pre- precisely because what you believe about it kind of it, it affects how you worship. If the doctrine of election does not elicit in you, if, if the doctrine of election does not draw out of you worship and praise and adoration and gratitude and joy and love, then you do not have a sufficient doctrine of election. The thought that God would choose me or choose you, that should cause us to worship. This is the very first, this whole passage from Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 all the way to verse 14, it's a doxological passage. If you were here last year, you would have remembered that, right? So um, it's a doxological, it's a passage all about praise. Paul begins by saying, praise be to God. I mean, look at what he's given us in the person of his son. And he begins to list out all the things that God has given us in the person of his son. And he ends this section in verse 14. The last words of the section are, to the praise of his glory. And the first thing that he place that he goes to, to worship God and to list out the, the, the infinite graciousness of God is this doctrine of election. Now, I'll leave the hairy part of it uh, for Pastor Gabe to uh, draw out the, uh, you know, the point of conflict. Uh, but for our purposes this morning, I just want you to see that the doctrine of election is something, first and foremost, that we sing about. It's a blessing. So There are some pastors who will just completely neglect this doctrine and I just look at that and I say, what on earth are you doing? You don't neglect the doctrine of election. This is, this is a glorious doctrine. And if you do not preach it and teach it, and Pastor Gabe's not that sort, of course, right? If you do not preach it and teach it, you are robbing from the people of God a central truth that will excite their hearts to worship and praise God for his grace. The second thing I want you to see in this passage is the timing of election. When did God choose you? Well, he says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. The timing of election. He chose you before you were born. He chose you before there was a sun, before there was a moon, before there were stars, before there were mountains and streams and valleys and rivers. 
He chose you, he chose me, before there was such a thing as the Milky Way galaxy. Before the foundation of the world. What, what, what does this tell us? Well, first it tells us that, that he didn't choose you because of anything that you brought to the table. He chose you before you were born, before you had done any good or bad. He didn't choose you because you are holy. I mean, notice, notice this, okay? Verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, because we were holy and blameless? No. He didn't choose us because we were holy and blameless. He chose us in order that we might become holy and blameless. Right. He chose you before you were born. And what is this doctrine of election? Really what the doctrine of election is, it's, uh, it's where God in eternity past set his seal of love on you and purposed to redeem you and save you. The doctrine of election is a doctrine that tells us of the love of God for us. That God has not just loved us. He didn't start loving us the moment we became Christians. That God has been loving us literally for thousands upon thousands upon thousands of years going back even before before he created the world in eternity past before the foundations of the world were put in place that God the father has loved you he set his seal of love on you and purposed to to save you unto himself before the foundation of the world so the timing of election tells us that God did not choose us because of something that he saw in us, right? You hear sometimes, I remember probably about 10 years ago, I heard this Bible teacher talk about the apostles, and he said that Jesus chose these 12 men because, because he saw some potential in them. You know, and that's just one of those face palm. What on earth? <laughs> God did not choose you. He didn't choose the apostles because of any potential that he saw in you. If anything, he chose us in spite of who we are, not because of who we are. If you look over maybe a page or two in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 2, look at verse 4. Paul says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. He chose us in spite of the fact that we are dead in trespasses and sins. He chose us in spite of ourselves, not because of ourselves. And this is why Paul will go on to say, after he talks about election unto holiness and then predestination unto adoption, he will go on to say, to the praise of his glorious grace. It's not to the praise of our great potential. It's not to the praise of anything that we've done. It's all to the praise of his glorious grace. He chose you and he purposed to save you in eternity past because of his grace not because of anything in you or in me. So it's a a humbling doctrine, is it not? God set his seal of love on you and purposed to save you. And this is a doctrine 
that invites us to sing the praises of God's glorious grace. The third thing I want you to see is the, God's means of blessing. And in this, I'm emphasizing the words, in him. Verse 4, even as he chose us, that's the Father chose us, in Christ, in him, before the foundation of the world. God does not bless any of us independently. He only blesses us in and through the person of his Son. Salvation is a Trinitarian effort. Each person of the Trinity is involved in salvation. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all of the blessings of the Father, all of the blessings of the Father come to us and are meted out to us in the person of his Son. Uh, Joel Beeky says that this passage tells us that Jesus is like a water tower. Right? You have all of the water in a community is stored up in the water tower in order for you to to get the water from the water tower, you got to tap into the water tower because all the water is stored up in the water tower. Well, similarly, all of the blessings that the Father has for us are stored up in the person of His Son. There is not one gift that the Father gives to us apart from giving it to us in the person of His Son. And this is why Jesus says, no one can come to the Father but by me. He, this, is, this is how God has decided, the Father, the triune God, has decided to bless and save. He's done it in the person of his Son. All of the blessings of the Father come to us in Christ. And this is why Paul emphasizes again and again, he uses this phrase, in Christ, or in him, or in the beloved, uh, 14 times in, these, in verses 3 through 14. He uses it roughly 150 times throughout his letters. In Christ, in him. And why is he always saying, in Christ, in him? It's because all of the blessings of the Father are found, they're bound up, they're stored up in Christ. And in order for us to receive the blessings of the Father, we have to be united to Christ by faith. We have to receive Christ. And so, if you're not a Christian and you're here this morning... If you want to receive the blessings of the Father, the blessing of the gift of salvation, you must believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. You must repent of your sins and be united to Christ by faith. Because there are no blessings. Outside of Christ, there is only damnation and condemnation. In, In Christ, that's where all the blessings are found. The fourth thing I want us to see is the goal of election. Unto what end did God the Father choose us in Christ? What was he aiming at when he chose us? Well, let's read the passage again. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, unto what end? That we should be holy and blameless before him. This is what he was aiming at. He chose us to be holy. He chose us to be blameless. This is the end unto which he chose us. Now, we should consider these words holy and blameless. What does it mean to be holy? What does this mean that he chose us to be holy? Well, 
holiness means to be, to be holy means to be set apart or separate. And it has a negative and a positive side. Negatively, holiness means that we are set apart from sin. We are separate from sin. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Listen to this. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. That's what it means to be holy in the negative sense. We are to go out from among them, be separate from them, and to touch no unclean thing. We are not to be like our co-workers and our neighbors and our family members who are not Christians. We are to be distinct. We're to be separate. We are to build relationships with non-Christians, but we are not to, to join them in their sin. We are to be set apart from sin, from the defilement of sin, from the pollution of sin, from the corruption of sin, from the stain of sin, from the shame of sin. We are to be completely set apart from sin. Paul says in Ephesians 5, verse 3, But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as become as saints. Don't even let these things be named among you. Be separate. Be set apart from these things. Be separate from sin. Well, that's the negative side of holiness. The positive side of holiness is that we are to be separate from sin, but we are to be separate, separated unto God and his use and his will. We are to be set apart from sin, and we are to be set apart for God and his will and his purpose. And so you think of the Lord Jesus when he says in John chapter 4, he says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. This is my sustenance, Jesus says. This is, this is my sustenance, to do the will of him who sent me. What is that? That's devotion to God. He's devoted to God. He's devoted to God's will. He is separate from sin, and he is separated unto, he is set apart for God and his use and his purposes. He is fully devoted to God. Now, when we think about holiness, a lot of times we think that holiness is primarily what we don't do, right? He's holy or she's holy because they don't, you know, smoke and whatever, <laughs> right? Um, but really, the, the, the root of holiness is what we do. We are devoted to God, and because we're devoted to God, we separate ourselves from sin. So it's a very watered-down view of holiness to think of it only in terms of what we don't do. It primarily is what we do. Holiness is that we are so devoted to God that we separate ourselves from everything that does not please him. And we are positively devoted to his will, his purpose, his plan, his agenda, his priorities. So there are some passages which bring the negative and the positive 
aspects of holiness and put them together. Now listen to this from Paul in 2 Timothy. Bringing the negative and the positive aspects of holiness, bringing them together. In 2 Timothy 2, Paul says, flee youthful passions. There you have the negative side. Run away from that sin. Be separate from it. Don't, you know, touch no unclean thing. Be separate from that. So he says, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. So we are to be separate from this, but we are to pursue this. We are to flee that. We are to pursue this. We are being separate from sin, but we are being separated unto God and his will. We are pursuing righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Paul says it this way in Ephesians chapter 4. He says, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. In other words, take off the old man, but what does he follow it up with? Put on the new man. Verse 24, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. It's not just taking off the old man, which is characterized by sin. It's also putting on the new man, which is created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So it's a taking off and it's a putting on. This is the totality of holiness. So he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy, set apart from sin for God and his use. But we are not just chosen to be holy, but also to be blameless. Now, what does the word blameless mean? It's pretty self-explanatory, I think. It means to be without blame, right? I think of uh, driving down the highway, and I kind of drive like a senior citizen. Um, So when you see a, a state trooper on the highway, what do you do? Well, it depends on how you drive, I guess, but um, most people get that thing in the back of the neck, you know. If I've been caught, <laughs> they, I, I know how most people do because when I'm driving, I see a state trooper, they all slam their brakes, right? And they're kind of sheepishly putting on their seatbelt. Um, but when I see a, a state trooper, I don't do anything. In fact, I've been known to pass state troopers because they're going slower than the speed limit and everyone's like piled up behind them. And I pass them because I'm, I'm not breaking the law. According to the, I am blameless in regard to the law of the road in New Hampshire. I'm blameless. I'm above reproach. That's what the word means. Because that, I'm not hiding any drugs in my glove compartment. This isn't a stolen vehicle. In, in, in terms of the law, I'm blameless. And because of that, I'm, I, I don't do anything. I just continue as if I just saw, hey, there's a semi and there's a state trooper. Whatever. Right. This is what blamelessness refers to. Paul uses this very word in Philippians chapter 2. He says... Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless. You hear that? That you may be blameless and innocent, children of God 
without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. So we are to be blameless, innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. So we live our lives in, a, in an unholy, blameworthy environment. And as we are in this unholy, blameworthy environment, we are to be holy and blameless, without blemish. We are to be innocent. We are to be, in other words, we are not to be like the world, right? We are to, we are to be unlike the crooked and perverse generation. This is a, I mean, this, you just hear this and you, you automatically see how high the calling, how high of a calling we have as Christians, how high it is. Our calling is to be blameless in the sight of the law of God. We will never get there. We'll never reach perfection in this life, but that is the end unto which God chose us. Paul says it this way in Titus, communicating what what does he mean by blamelessness? Listen to this from Titus 2. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. Listen to this. So that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Live your life in such a way that the opponents of Christ, the opponents of his church, the opponents of his gospel, will have nothing evil to say about you. As Christians, we are going to have enemies. And we need to live in such a way where these enemies, when they want to dig up dirt on us, they can't because they can't find any. That's what it means to be blameless, above reproach. Well, so that's kind of a walkthrough of the text. The fifth thing is I want to lay out some implications of this passage for our Christian lives. So that's kind of the the exposition, and this is the application, I guess you could say. The first implication of this passage, Ephesians 1-4, is the priority of holiness. Now, I have three implications. The, The first one is the priority of holiness. Notice that, notice what Paul does not say here. Notice that Paul does not say, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be saved. It's not what he says. He says that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless. God the Father, when he chose you, had his sights. Unto what end did he choose you? He looked past your initial salvation. He's aiming at your holiness. He's aiming at your sanctification. It involves your initial salvation, but it, it's, he's aiming at something beyond it. You see? Unto what end did he choose you? That you would be holy and blameless. Now this is the same thing that Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 29. 
where Paul says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined unto what end? Not to salvation, to be conformed to the image of his Son. It's not, not that salvation's not included in that, of course it is. But he's aiming at something beyond salvation. What he's aiming at, why, why, unto what end, according to Romans 8, did God predestine you? He predestined you that you might be conformed to the image of his Son. He saved you to sanctify you. He saved you to conform you to the image. He, this is the end unto which he chose you. In eternity past, he chose you, and for what purpose? To make you holy, to make you like his son, that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brethren. To conform you and to conform me to the image of Christ. This is what he set his sights on. This is the end to which he chose us. Which tells us what? Sanctification is a big deal. It's a big deal. Sanctification, now, you know, I've heard Pastor Gabe a number of times, uh, rightly, correctly, critique and chastise the so-called hyper-grace movement. Right, and I'm sure that you've, if you've been here for any length of time, you've probably heard Pastor Gabe's mention the word "hypergrace movement" or the phrase. <laughs> and what the, and the, by the way, the hypergrace movement is worthy of critique, because what the hypergrace movement does is it emphasizes our initial salvation, justification, it it emphasizes justification and almost entirely neglects sanctification. Now, justification is that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Our only hope before God, and the hyper-grace people are correct on this, that our only hope before God is, was, and always will be the righteousness of Christ laid to our account. That is true. That is good. That is to be celebrated. However, Jesus did not save us to sit on our hands. He saved us to conform us to the image of his son, that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brethren. He saved us to sanctify us, to make us holy. John Calvin, he speaks of what he called, what he referred to as the duplex gratia, which just means double grace, double grace or dual graces of God. Justification and sanctification. And these things are equally important. There's, it's good that the hyper-grace folks elevate justification. That needs to be elevated. I'm not, for one second, don't, don't get me wrong here, I'm not in any way saying that we should not emphasize and continue to emphasize justification by faith alone. We have to. In fact, we should emphasize it more. Figure out how can we emphasize this even more. The problem is, is that they neglect almost entirely sanctification. Sanctification is uh, the process by which we become more and more holy, the process which, by which we become more and more conformed to the image of Christ in our practical lives. Now, let me make this clear. 
your hope before God is, was, and always has been the righteousness of Christ laid to your account. The more you grow in sanctification, your hope still is to be on Christ and Christ alone. You never put your hope in your own effort, your own work, your own growth in grace. But as you're hoping in Christ and trusting in Christ and looking to Christ as your only hope before God, you want to please God for his grace in saving you. And so you strive after this holiness. You want to please the one who has showered the riches of his grace upon you. And so you pursue righteousness as a response of gratitude to this great gift of justification by faith. And God's priority in this passage is your sanctification. The duplex gratia, salvation or justification, sanctification, they're equally important. God did not save you to sit on your hands while you wait for heaven. He saved you to conform you to the image of his son. So I wrote this just so I I wouldn't get it, so I would make sure, because I don't want to miscommunicate. I want to read this. So our devotion to God does not make us more saved or more righteous before him. And we do not put our hope in our own performance. As we seek to grow in holiness in our own lives, we remind ourselves again and again that our hope before God is and always has been and always will be Christ and Christ alone. And yet we strive after holiness to please the one who has lavished such infinite grace upon us in the person of his Son. There is a a hymn by, I think it was Sandra McCracken, that said, when I stand on the edges of Jordan, basically, when I stand on the edge of heaven, when I stand on the edges of Jordan with the saints and the angels beside, when my body is healed and the glory revealed, still I will boast only in Christ. Right? So even when we're in heaven for 10,000 years, and someone comes up to you and says, what's the basis of your hope before God? even though you've been sinlessly perfect for 10,000 years in heaven, you will say, the righteousness of Christ lay to my account. It's not just something that gets you in the door. It's something that keeps you there forever. Right. And yet, we are saved, not just to this initial salvation where we are justified, He chose us, what God the Father was aiming at when he chose us in Christ, was that we might be holy. Listen to, or you can just look over uh, at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. Paul takes justification and sanctification, and he puts them together. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of works. You are saved by grace through faith. It's the gift of God. It's not the result of works. Your salvation, the basis of your hope in regard to salvation is Christ. And it will always be Christ. So that no one may boast. Now verse 10, he goes on and he says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works 
which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we are not saved by our good works, but we are saved for good works. Justification is the root. Sanctification is the flower. Right. And he says here in verse 10, Ephesians 2 verse 10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. Well, when did God prepare these good works that we should walk in them? Well, maybe when he, in eternity past, before the foundation of the world, chose us to be holy and blameless before him. God saved us that we might serve him in the beauty of holiness. And this is what he's aiming at in predestination. It's what he's aiming at in sanctification, or in, uh, in election. He's not aiming at our initial salvation. He's aiming at conformity to the image of Christ. Sanctification. Well, the second implication of this passage for our Christian lives is the confidence of holiness. And this, I guess, is where it becomes more of a sermon, I guess. So, um, <clears throat> this passage, almost more than any other passage in the Bible, is, gives me the most, com- the most confidence in my own personal battle with sin. I mean, you think about what Paul is saying here. What was the Father aiming at when he chose you? Your holiness. And we all battle sin, every single one of us, and we have these besetting sins, and we fail, 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 and we fail again, and then we repent and confess and fail again, and repent and confess and fail again. And and this happens not just once or twice with the same sin, but sometimes 50, 100, 200 times we're constantly failing. Those of us who've been Christians for decades... Oftentimes, we're struggling with the same sins that we had when we first came to know Christ. Whether it's pride or whatever lust or greed or covetousness or whatever it may be. And we go before God and we cry out to him to deliver us and to forgive us. But when you've been a Christian and you've been engaging in this war against the flesh for decades and you only lose and faceplant again and again and again and again you start to think to yourself why am i even trying right what's the point in striving against sin what's the point I'm going to repent and I'm just going to fall again. I know it. And every single one of you have been there if you're engaged in the battle. <laughs> All right? And the temptation is to throw down the sword and the shield and to say, this is an exercise in futility. You know, I uh, heard R.C. Sproul, there was an interview with R.C. Sproul right before he passed. Uh, it was about, you know, his life and his ministry, and I couldn't find the interview, but I remember whoever was interviewing him asked him, they said, um, 
what is your biggest regret? And R.C. Sproul said, you know, it was like an immediate answer. He said, my biggest regret is that it took me 40 years to quit smoking. And he said, as, you know, R.C. Sproul had a way with words, he said, I was a ma- I'm a ma- I was, he said, I'm a professional at quitting smoking because I did it 500 times, you know. Um, you know, then he had to quit again and again and again. And I think about someone like Sproul battling with that besetting sin for 40 years. There had to have been moments where he said, why? Why? Why?" I mean, it's been 40 years. Come on. Why continue to strive against this? I know myself. The Bible tells me that I'm a sinner. I know I'm just going to fall again. And this passage is one of the passages that I go to when that's where I'm at. Because what this passage tells you is that, and what it tells me, is that before the foundation of the world, God had his sight set not just on your initial salvation. He had his sight set on your holiness, your conformity to the image of Christ. He, this is the very end unto which he chose you to be holy, to be conformed to the image of his Son. In other words, holiness is God's priority for you. And we know that it's God's priority, I mean, because you consider the word and consider how God has equipped us to engage in this battle against the flesh, the world, the devil. He's given us his spirit, has he not? The spirit has taken up residence within us. The spirit comforts us. The spirit convicts us. The spirit exhorts us through the word. The spirit of God empowers us to defeat the sin that we cannot defeat in our own strength. He's given us his word, the commandments of his word, the encouragements of his word, the exhortations, which just means basically keep fighting, right? The exhortations of his word. He's given us promises. Think of this promise, uh, you know, that, that uh, you will never be tempted beyond your ability. God is faithful. He will always provide a way of escape. What a promise. He's given us the promises of his word, the encouragements of his word. He's given us each other that we might encourage each other, comfort each other, exhort each other, rebuke each other. He's given us pastors, overseers who oversee our soul and minister the word to us and the power of the Spirit. I mean, you just think about Ephesians chapter 6. He's given us armor for warfare. He's given us a helmet and a breastplate and a belt and shoes and a sword and a shield so that we're fully equipped for the battle. The battle against sin, the battle against the devil, the battle against the pole of this world. He's he's thoroughly decked us out and given us everything that we need. And this is exactly what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 2, where he says his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. 
That means that he's given us everything we need to live a godly life. Why? Because this is his priority. It's what he was aiming at when he chose you before you get this kind of like word picture with my hand. Or this is your initial salvation. He's aiming at something beyond your initial salvation. This is what he was aiming at when he chose you, is your holiness. Which means that your battle against sin is not a lost cause. Maybe that's where you are today. You look and you say, I've put my sword down. I've put my shield down. Because no matter how hard I try, I just face plant again and again and again. What is the point? Or even with your Bible reading or your prayer time, you try to do a Bible reading program and you just fall off the wagon. And then you try to get in and you fall off the wagon. Well, keep repenting and keep getting back up. The, I mean, this is a... The, the, the Lord, this is what he was aiming at. God, this is his priority for you. He wants you to look like his son. Don't be discouraged. Cling to his promises. Well, the last implication of this passage for our lives is the hope of holiness. And I want you to notice here the words before him. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In this world, in this life, we live our Christian lives, you know, heard the phrase quorum Deo. We live our lives quorum Deo, which means before the face of God. And in this life, we strive after, we strive to put sin to death. We strive after the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And we fail. And we can get real victory in our lives. We will never be sinlessly perfect. That's not what I'm suggesting here, and that's not what this text is suggesting. We'll never be sinlessly perfect in this life. But we do grow from one degree of glory to another in conformity to the image of Christ. We know from 2 Corinthians 3. But in this life, we are constantly repenting. It's a two steps forward, one step back. Four steps forward, two steps back. One step forward, four steps back, right? It's kind of like the stock market where it's... There's, a, there's an upward trajectory on the whole, but there is quite a few valleys, right? It's sort of how our Christian lives are. And as we live our lives before him, quorum Deo, in this life, this life that is marked by constant warfare and disappointments and repentance and confession and then growth and then failure, and then disappointments, and confession, and repentance. As we live our lives quorum Deo, we, there is a sense of, although we're growing, we will never be perfectly conformed to Christ in this life. 
But the hope of holiness is that although we live our lives quorum Deo in the here and now, one day we will stand before him face to face. We will see him no longer in through a mirror darkly. We will see him face to face and we will stand before him on that day, whether that day happens the moment you die or the moment when Christ returns. And on that day, you and I will be changed. Supernaturally, miraculously changed. And the flesh, we will, we will be radically transformed in such a way where we will perfectly be conformed to the image of Christ. We will be made perfectly holy, not just because we have the righteousness of Christ laid to our account, but we will be perfectly holy in practice when we enter glory. When we stand before God on that great day, we will be changed. The flesh, we will no longer have to strive against the flesh. I mean, this world, our Christian lives in this world, it, it's, it's characterized as the, the Westminster Confession says it like this, it's a continual and irreconcilable war. And that marks your life and my life as a Christian. It's a war. There is no time to put the armor down. And you know that because you constantly sin, right? But in that day, the war will be over. There will be no more flesh to contend with. There will be no more pole of the world. Satan will be a defeated foe cast into the lake of fire. And on that day, there will be the peace and the silence of victory where there will be no more striving to love God and to love neighbor without the frustration of sin. And that puts a smile on my face. Now we live our lives before him and we're like the, the way I think of it is like a baby giraffe. I mean, we're just, we're goofy and uncoordinated, constantly falling. I'm not saying that in heaven we'll be like a full-grown giraffe because they're still weird, but once we get to glory, we will be perfectly conformed to his image. We'll be able to retire the helmet and the breastplate and the shield and the sword. Because sin will be a forgotten thing, a defeated foe. And that's a glorious hope, is it not? And that's what God the Father ultimately was aiming at when he chose you in Christ. And I hope with along with me, that you will say, why did he choose me? Instead of being angry about it, that he chose certain people, that you would say, praise his name that he chose me unto this end. Well, let's thank him for his grace. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your goodness to us. We thank you for your kindness for your patience with us as we battle. We thank you ultimately for this great hope. We thank you that you have given us everything we need to live a godly life. 
We thank you that in eternity past, dear Father, that you chose us in your Son to be holy and blameless before you. To the praise of your glorious grace. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.